What do we still not know about Frederick Douglass, one of the most important African-American figures of the 19th century? David Blight will be here to discuss Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. And how do you capture a man who has famously eluded biographers? Bob Spitz will join us to talk about his new book, Reagan, An American Journey. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. David Blight joins us now from New Haven, where he is a professor of American history at Yale University. He's the author of many books, including Race and Reunion, The Civil War in American Memory, which won the Bancroft Prize, as well as Who Speaks for the Negro, American Oracle, The Civil War in the Civil Rights Era, A Slave No More, and many others. And his new book is a biography of Frederick Douglass called Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. David, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Pamela. Very nice to be with you. So this is not the first biography of Frederick Douglass. Many biographies, I'm assuming, have been written. Why did you decide to write a a biography of this person whose life has not been undocumented? Yes, not the first biography of Douglass, but I chose to take this on as a full life of Douglass almost 10 years ago because I encountered a heretofore unseen private collection of Douglas material. It's an extraordinary collection owned by a man named Walter Evans, who's a collector who lives in Savannah, Georgia. And I went there to give a talk to high school teachers about Douglas and met Walter. He showed me uh, major parts of his collection. It took me a little while to to come to the decision, but it was encountering that collection that made me think about trying to write a full life of Douglas, because that collection, it's extraordinary. It's mostly family documents and family scrapbooks that were kept by Douglas's sons over the last 30 years of their father's life. And what it did is open up never before the last third of Frederick Douglass's long life. Mm-hmm. We tend to know, if people tend to know Douglass, they tend to know the younger Douglass, the escaped slave, the heroic period of him writing his first two autobiographies and so forth, and they tend not to know much about the older Douglass, and that's what this collection opened up to me, and that's frankly why I chose to write the new biography. Had previous scholars not had access to those papers? There were a few people who had seen Walter Evans's collection, but none had really used it. Now several others have, but one has to go to his home in Savannah to do it. But no, no one had really used that collection yet for for any historical or scholarly work. So the material that he had, you mentioned that it covered a period of his life that was sort of less explored by previous biographers. Did it fundamentally shed light on who he was as a person in ways that didn't exist through those earlier sources? Yes, it did. Douglas, the aging or the older man from his 40s through his 70s, he lived all the way to 1895, became many things. He was the radical outsider who became a kind of political insider. Mm -hmm. And this collection really helped me see and understand that. And I made it a major theme of the book. He also held three federal appointments. 
And then he became as well, and this is where the Evans collection was so useful, he became the head or patriarch of a huge extended family. He had three surviving sons, one surviving daughter, 21 grandchildren between them. He also had a few fictive siblings, that is, siblings he adopted or, or who adopted him from slavery days, and a variety of other hangers-on and, and people he mentored and so on. And this uh, extended family became almost entirely financially dependent on him. Mm -hmm. And after he moved to Washington in 1872 and lived out the rest of his life there, his extended family became what I call in the book, a kind of black first family of Washington, D.C. Everything they did, uh, uh, good, bad, and ugly, got into the press, black press, the white press. And so... Douglas lived as this kind of increasingly and extraordinarily famous American with all of the perils and problems that came along with that. But also I was able to much more clearly see and understand what it, what it meant to be Douglas the traveling orator mm -hmm. because he continued his itinerant lecturing year after year after year into old age in part because he was so in demand on all kinds of issues, but also because he needed the money to right. support this extended family. And that life of the itinerant orator, traveling literally thousands of miles, year after year, I was able to document as never before, because a great part of what these scrapbooks are, are thousands of newspaper clippings about everywhere Douglas went, what he spoke about, where he spoke, and why. It allowed me to, to make a much more textured, richer portrait of the full life of Douglas and not only the life of the abolitionist. Start from the beginning. Where and when was he born, and what were the circumstances around his, his early life? He's born likely in his grandmother Betsy Bailey's cabin along a, a horseshoe bend in the Tuckahoe River out on the eastern shore of Maryland in 1818. His mother was one of the five daughters of Betsy Bailey. His mother's name was Harriet. He never really knew his mother in any substantive way. He had vague memories of her, but he never saw her after the age of five. And he never knew his father, although he did know his father was white and that He'd always heard that his father might have been his master mm -hmm. or one of his masters. He had two owners. And the best candidates for his father are either Aaron Anthony or a man named Thomas Ald, who were his two owners. We still don't know. Did he attempt to figure it out? He never figured it out, but he, he surely spent a great deal of energy trying to figure out his paternity. Even down to the end of his life, he was writing to and corresponding with a son and a daughter of Thomas Auld, asking questions like, in effect, are we siblings? Do you know my birth date? And so forth. Douglas never knew his actual birth date. He actually thought he was one year older than he was. But no, he never was able to figure out exactly who his father was, and therefore he didn't know which of all these white people he had known on the Eastern Shore that he was truly, you know, related to in, in some way. He spent 20 years as a slave 
about half of it out on the eastern shore in rural plantation slavery, including working as a field hand. Mm. But then almost 10 years of it as well in Baltimore, which was uh, the luckiest break of his life in many ways, would, was to grow up in part in a big maritime port like, like Baltimore, where he not only worked in the docks, but he was part of a city, part of this huge port city. And also, he was a slave, but nevertheless lived in the midst of a very large free black community in Baltimore. He attended their churches. He got involved in a debating society. He made lots of friends, including a young woman named Anna Murray, who became his fiance and would bravely follow him out of slavery when he escaped at age 20. How typical was that experience to be enslaved and yet live in a free black community? It wasn't very typical, but it but it happened to those slaves who were in urban settings, who lived in cities. Baltimore, at the time Douglas escaped, Baltimore had well over 100,000 people. It was a huge ocean port and a big shipbuilding city. But it had about 3,000 slaves. And yet it had about 13,000 free blacks. Mm-hmm. The free black population of Baltimore was huge. And they worked in all kinds of jobs. They had no basic rights of any kind. But for a slave to live in such a free black community environment meant he or she would have to be in a city like Baltimore, to some extent Richmond, the port cities of Charleston, New Orleans, and the like. It, w- it was really, you know, without Baltimore, frankly, and Douglas spending so much of his teenage years there, we were, really wouldn't even know about him. He would have never really had an escape. He he referred several times to what he called his Baltimore dreams, which were the inspirations and the ideas and the hopes that he garnered from his reading and his connections and his friends by being in Baltimore. How did he come to be literate? Well, the literacy came very early, especially from his first mistress, Sophia Ald, who was the wife of Hugh Ald, brother of Thomas Ald. When Douglas was first sent to Baltimore, he's only six, seven years old, but she, for more than a year, taught him his alphabet daily, mm-hmm. taught him to read, and taught him to start reading even the Bible. And then uh, Douglas just took the language in ways uh, that are a bit mysterious. But he just loved the idea of words and language, and he started collecting newspapers and anything he could get his hands on. Then he encountered a school book. It's very important. It was a reader that he sees in the hands of his white buddies and friends on the streets of Baltimore when he's about 11. And that book is called The Columbian Orator. And Douglas managed then with with a little bit of money that he had been allowed to keep from all the jobs he was doing, managed to buy himself his own Colombian order when he was about 12. And that book became the most precious possession he had. The introduction to the book, some 20 pages, was was basically a manual of oratory, Mm -hmm. of how to become an orator, how to modulate your voice, how to use your arms and shoulders, and how to work up to a crescendo, and so on and so on. He just took to words like it was food, and he became, in time, 
one of the great geniuses with words really ever produced in America. It sounds like from his very early days, his experiences, he was exceptional. The terms of his enslavement were exceptional in terms of his education and where he lived. What about his escape? How unusual was it and how did he escape? His escape was unusual. He escaped at age 20, late August 1838. It was very well planned and he was lucky he was able to execute it. He borrowed um, a, a sailor's identity papers from a black man he knew in Baltimore, and he packed a little one little duffel bag, and the plan was, and it worked. He quickly got on a train, he bought a ticket, got on a train in Baltimore, rode the train to where he then had to switch to a ferry, and to make a long story short, in about 36, 37 hours, by three trains and two ferry boats, one crossing the Susquehanna, he made it to the Hudson River at Hoboken. And from Hoboken, he took the little boat, crossed the Hudson River to the base of Chambers Street in lower Manhattan on the west side. And that's where he entered New York City. Now, Anna Murray, uh, soon to be Douglas, his first wife, she took the same trains, ferries, and so forth same period of time, and she joined him in New York. And uh, about three or four days after he had escaped, he and Anna were married. He didn't stay in New York, though, because it wasn't at all safe. And he and Anna quickly took to the East River and to a steamer up to New Bedford, Massachusetts, which was known to be a kind of safe haven for fugitive slaves. It was a whaling town, big port town. And Douglas and Anna would live there for the first three years of his life and freedom. We don't have time to get into his three memoirs and his own newspaper and his completely fascinating personal life, including his second marriage to a white woman. But just to give people a sense of his impact as a thinker, as an abolitionist, as a newspaper man, as a um, political figure, how influential was he? How famous was he in his day? What was his impact? How many you know people read his memoirs? How well known was he? That narrative, the first autobiography, made him truly famous, not only in the U.S., but also in Britain, because he, he sailed to England right after publishing it. And he spent 18 months in Ireland, Scotland, and England, where he was lionized. He had never experienced the kind of attention and uh, importance and fame and audiences that frankly loved him. And then when he came back to the U.S., he was actually a pretty angry young man because he had really seen a world that had relatively little racism, that honored him seemingly everywhere he went. And yet he comes back to the hothouse of racism and pro-slavery in the U.S. He went out on his own, moved to Rochester, New York, founded his own newspaper, and Douglas became, by the late 1840s and into the 1850s, the most famous black orator and the most famous black newspaper man, uh, journalist of all. Now, he wasn't alone. There are plenty of other black abolitionists, and some of them were remarkable orators, preachers, and even writers. But none were quite as good at it as Douglas was. Douglas made that fame with his pen and with his voice. 
the first autobiography sold 30,000 copies in the first five years. That's a huge sale in the 19th century. The second autobiography in 1855 sold 18,000 copies the first year. Mm. There's a big audience for slave narratives, and his were the best written and became the most widely read. Douglas had a way to hear the music of words in his head and then to put them on paper. And by the way, many, many of his speeches, in fact, all of his greatest speeches, were crafted on paper first. We have text for them. So this wasn't just the perfect spontaneous orator who could get up and bedazzle everybody. He had to write it down first. Lots of material there for a biographer. As his biographer... When you think about his legacy, what was the, what's the most important thing that you want to convey to readers today with this book? To me, one of the most amazing things about him was this endurance of hatred and racism, and yet the ability to still believe and demand a place in the country's creeds. He never stopped believing in the basic first principles of the Declaration of Independence. He never stopped believing in the natural rights tradition. He never stopped believing in a kind of millennial vision of history that somehow, you know, God might destroy some societies in history, but he could also find ways, therefore, to reinvent them. It's that endurance, both physical, mental, and intellectual, about Douglas through that entire epic of slavery, the Civil War, Reconstruction, and beyond that leaves the biggest mark to me. Well, it's an extraordinary monumental life and suitably a monumental book about him. David, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Pamela. Thanks very much. David Blight is the author of Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, this week reviewed on the cover of the book review. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Bob Spitz joins us now. He's the author of a new biography, Reagan, An American Journey. Bob, thanks for being here. My pleasure, Pamela. So you've written biographies of Julia Child, The Beatles, Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit different. Why Reagan? It is. You know, I was looking for somebody after I had finished the uh, Julia Child book, and my wife pointed out to me that all of my biographies had two elements in common. They were about people who were beloved and people who had changed the culture. And when I was looking for another subject, there were people who fit into one or the other, but not both. It was a really slim and narrow field. And she said to me, what about Ronald Reagan? And I, you know, I am a lifelong Democrat. I don't think I've ever voted for a Republican, certainly not for Reagan. And the more I thought about it, I looked at uh, the books that had been written about them. They were either hagiography or policy wonks or 
or swim looks at, at one part of his career. And I thought he deserved a, a full-scale, definitive biography the way that David McCulloch wrote about Truman. And, and so uh, I dived into it. Mm-hmm. Did this doing this book convert you to being a fan of Reagan? Well, let's put it this way. I, I certainly wouldn't vote for him, mm-hmm. but I found so much to admire uh, in the man. I mean, this is especially when you hold it up as a mirror to the times that we're going through now. There was plenty to admire, and uh, yeah, I wouldn't vote for him. (laughs) (laughs) What did you find yourself admiring about Ronald Reagan? You know, he was a uniter, not a divider. He was somebody who really believed in the goodness of the American people, uh, and he never wavered from that. Even when, you know, I disagreed with what he was doing, he, he did it with the intention of making something better in America. You know, and I also found that the legacy that Nancy Reagan had carved out for him to be a man of peace really held dear that, you know, he he made every effort to talk to Mikhail Gorbachev to reach some kind of accommodation with the Soviet Union, which we had not had for, you know, since World War II, to reduce the threat of, of nuclear annihilation in the world. So there, w- there was a lot for me to admire in him, and also the way he, uh, he talked to the American people. Did this stem from certain personal qualities that he had, that he exhibited, and did those sort of emerge from an early age? Yeah, you know, he came from a very humble background, very humble, rarely knew if there was going to be food on the table. He had a fabulous career. I mean, he could have stopped at any one of the legs along the way. He was a brilliant, you know, radio broadcaster. A mediocre actor, but, you know, a thriving career in Hollywood, uh, a stand-up guy as the president of the Screen Actors Guild. So I think all of those kind of fed into his ability to to do something positive in the world. Going back to those early years, he also was the son of an alcoholic father. Yes. Did that affect him, and how did it? Yeah, it really did. You know, he, he read a book when he was 11 years old called That Printer of Udells that his mother had given to him. And it was about a boy who had an alcoholic father who dedicated himself to doing good in the world. And he said to his mom, I want to be that boy. And he read that book throughout his career. I actually was given access. Nobody had ever had it before to his personal papers. These are the ones that aren't in the library. They're, they were in his office. And that book was in his personal papers annotated throughout his career. So I really got to see how what happened with his dad and and you know they they used to move under the cover of night when rent came due that's how dire the situation was so i i think he it it influenced him and his and his policies all through his life let's talk about those papers a little bit yeah. so none of his previous biographers had access to those one papers one person did one person did edmund morris yeah but they were never unwrapped they still have the white house tapes on them when i opened them up that's so curious well if you've read dutch you <laughs> you can probably figure it out he's a brilliant biographer i, I had a lot of respect for ed morris and his books I, I just think he couldn't penetrate ronald reagan so we're talking about Dutch, the book that came yes. out in 1999, that, exactly which, in right. which he sort of lightly fictionalized Ronald Reagan's life story, even as his authorized biographer. Yes, and he famously said that, you know, he couldn't get a hold on Reagan. He had him sitting right across the table, and I think that that was one of the problems that he had, because Reagan was not a reflective man. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that really stymied Ed Morris. It would, for any biographer who— has a, an eyewitness, you know, sitting, a source sitting right opposite him 
who can't answer the questions that you ask. Did not having that kind of direct contact with Ronald Reagan actually help you? In Absolutely. Terms of- Although, you know, I had access to Ed Morris's interviews with the president, too. I, I would have asked a few different questions. How did you get that access to those tapes and to those office papers? Well, I was denied them when I asked the author. He s- sent me a very rude note. And I was telling this to Joanne Drake, who's the head of the Reagan Foundation, uh, who, who controls the family's interests. And she said, uh, by the way, he doesn't own those. We do. And here they are. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was a great added source for me to see what they said. But interestingly, there have been biographies of Reagan written since Dutch came out in 1999 yes. and this new book. No other previous biographers requested those papers from the Ronald Reagan Foundation? I imagine not. <laughs> I was, you know, you have. I was always told as a young guy, you got to speak up. Right. What else was in their office papers? Well, the the most fascinating thing was what influenced him more than anything else was Reader's Digest. He read those articles backwards and forwards, and he took them to heart. And he adopted a lot of things that were in those articles that weren't necessarily accurate. He took them right to his heart, Mm -hmm. and and he acted on them throughout his career. They were all annotated in his handwriting. Kind of brilliant that he wanted to focus on the heartland and the Midwest, and that that really came out of his years that he spent as the spokesperson and the ambassador uh, for General Electric when he talked to people who were working-class people in in their factories. Give us an example from Reader's Digest. I'll tell you there was one thing that really took me for a loop— There was a story about a person who felt that there were aliens living in the United States, living among us. And when I talked to one of Reagan's campaign managers, actually his campaign manager for the uh, 1980 election, John Sears, he told me that Reagan told him he really believed that there were aliens living among us right now. Mm -hmm. And Sears said to him, why don't we save that for the next election? (laughs) Wow. Yeah, really. So one of the things you mentioned earlier about other biographers is that they have either, you know, focused primarily on the presidency, the political years, or one single kind of aspect of Reagan's life. And that seems understandable, given that he had a full career in radio and television, in the movies, in labor union leadership, in the governorship of California, and then, of course, two terms as president, then his post-presidential life. Right. So that's a lot to get into one biography. This book is, I think, 761 pages. Yeah. What was the biggest challenge Well, I mean, you've alluded to it as cutting it down. I mean, uh, I understand why Bob Carroll writes five volumes of Lyndon Johnson. I could have easily done that with Reagan. But I learned my lesson the hard way. When I delivered my Beatles manuscript, it was 2,800 pages. And Michael Peach, who was the, the editor at Little Brown at the time, said to me, This is unpublishable. Mm -hmm. But he gave it to one of his editors, and they called me about six weeks later, and they said, we've done a first cut. We've cut out 1,700 pages. (laughs) (laughs) And, I, you know, I read it, and I said to him, what did you cut? I mean, it was was a brilliant cut. And then he cut another 200 pages. He said, I'm really going to make you cry. I, I found how you telescope a story, how you really boil it down if you're going to do a one volume examination of somebody's life, you owe it to yourself to find out what are the most important things you want to say about this person. 
and to, and to go from there. And and also, you know, I wanted to make sure that this was a readable narrative, mm-hmm. that it was something that wouldn't be a policy wonk, that you wouldn't get lost in, in such trivial details about initiatives, uh, that you would read the story of a man's life. That was very important to me. What were the most important things that you wanted to boil it down to about the life? Each phase of his career needed examination. I was really lucky when I got to Hollywood because, you know, everybody is practically gone. But I found Olivia de Havilland living in Paris, and she and I became pen pals for a while. And at one point, I said to her, "Um, I'm going to be in Paris. I knew she didn't see people. She was just about to be 100. I said, can I come visit you? And she said, oh, please do. Let's have champagne and canapes. Her acuity was incredible. Her long-range memory was great. And she had all the papers of the formation of the Screen Actors Guild and the committees that she worked on with Reagan. She remembered them vividly. It was the highlight of my research. Wow. What did she have to say about him? Did she know him personally? Oh, oh, absolutely. Not only did she act with him, uh, she was in Santa Fe Trail with him famously. But, you know, she served on every political committee with him. She one time suspected that he was a communist, and he flirted with joining the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. He suspected she was a, a, a communist as well, and they had a great laugh over that. But she, uh, she, yeah, she knew him famously, and she also told me the real story of how he met Nancy Reagan, too, which, which I detailed in the book. Well, tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, it was a setup. Reagan had been divorced from Jane Wyman. He was in a real funk about it. He, he felt suicidal at one point, he admitted, and, and he was crying on a lot of people's shoulders, and a lot of people wanted to fix him up. He went through a famous phase of dating a lot of young women. They found a woman named Nancy Davis who they thought was perfect for him, and, and it, as it turned out, boy, were they right. <laughs> Did Olivia de Havilland consider Reagan a friend? Yes, without a doubt, and that's why she wanted to talk to me. She She— does not speak to the public. Mm -hmm. She wanted to talk about Ronald Reagan because she admired him. She liked him. She felt he did great as the president of the Screen Actors Guild, and she wanted to contribute to the story. I mean, one of the reasons I asked specifically about the friendship question is because he was kind of known as not having a lot of close friends, that sort of Nancy was the one person in his life in whom he confided. Even just hearing you talk about crying on people's shoulders sounds like an unfamiliar side of Ronald Reagan. It is an unfamiliar side. It's a little self-serving in this case. But you are right on the money about that. One of the things that I found all throughout is that Reagan had no close friends. Not as a kid, not as a young man, not in Hollywood. You know, he palled around with some people once in a while, but there were no close friendships. And certainly, certainly not as the president and, and governor. He was a loner in that respect. And I think that uh, goes back to one of your original questions of, of the influence of his father and his early upbringing. He really realized early on that he had to do it on his own. He had to pull himself up by his own bootstraps. What was it that motivated him? What drove him? You know, it's a good question, and I don't know if I've ever been able to figure it out. He, 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 never, he was reluctant about everything. He was reluctant to run for governor. He was reluctant to run for president. But I think what motivated him was to succeed, to show that he wasn't going to wind up the way his father wound up and that he needed to succeed at whatever he did. Did he ever have doubts 
about his own abilities? Oh, I, I think he had doubts all the time. You know, Reagan knew that he was not the smartest man in the room, even when he was president. And so he relied on the advice of his advisors. The lucky thing about him compared to what we're going through today is that Reagan surrounded himself with experts, with really capable people. But he, he, he didn't understand a lot of the issues. They were too complex for him. So he always had doubts going into meeting, but he knew that he could rely on his own instincts, which was to be able to charm people, to be able to talk through something. He was good on his feet. Was he, and this seems like an odd question to ask of someone who ran for office and held office for so many years, but was he a political person? Oh, he was a political beast, really from a very young age. His dad was the only Democrat in a solid Republican town in the Midwest. Reagan was a lifelong FDR Democrat until the 1950s. But Jane Wyman divorced him because she she kept saying she couldn't get him to shut up about politics. It Mm. was always politics, politics. And Olivia de Havilland told me that in between every take on the set— that it was all politics, that actors waited to see where he would sit in the commissary because they didn't want to wind up next to him because they would get an earful of politics. He was obsessed with it. I mean, in what respect? In other words, was it ideological? Was there, what, did he just like the horse race of it? The, I, the, think he uh, liked, I think he liked all of it. As he got older, yes, it was ideological, without a doubt. I mean, here we see him famously instill conservatism into the Republican Party in, in a huge way. But but early on, I, I think you're right. I think it was the horse race. He loved the give and take. In college, he was the same way. He, he famously gave a, a speech at a student strike that shut down the college. Mm-hmm. And there he discovers his voice, his political voice. What takes him from an advocate of organized labor, a New Deal Democrat, to, at that time at least, what was really the, the more conservative end of the Republican Party? Two things, communists and taxes. He got involved with a lot of very liberal lefty organizations, political organizations in Hollywood. And they were infiltrated by people who believed in the communist line. That was one thing that drove him away. And he saw the turmoil that it caused in Hollywood. The other thing was when he was in the service during World War II, he made a grave error. He had read that servicemen in World War I were forgiven their taxes when they got out of the service. So he didn't pay his taxes while he was serving. Mm-hmm. He was wrong. And he wound up with a $90,000 tax bill when he got out and always felt after that, that Uncle Sam had his hand in his pocket. And it destroyed Reagan's belief in the Democratic Party. He wanted less taxes, smaller government. And he carried that through for the rest of his career. A biography of Reagan in the year 2018 is going to read very differently from a biography of Reagan in obviously in 1999, even 10 years ago. How much did the context of our current political moment kind of infiltrate your writing about him? Well, not at the beginning when when, when this guy, the current guy, was not involved. Mm-hmm. But as he did, and I was finishing the book, I realized what kind of a mirror it would be. And I kind of, I, I think I kind of emphasized some of the things that Reagan was doing at the end of his career that was nonpartisan. He came back to the AIDS issue that he had ignored so ridiculously early on. 
And, and I found more sympathy for him, I think, in light of what I was reading in, in the Times every day. <laughs> Did you feel like at the end of working on this book that you got him? Completely. You know, in every book I've ever written, I've reached a point where I could sit and interview a key witness. And if they told me they were in the room and understood what was going on at the time, I would know that it never happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, you get a handle on your subject at a certain point. If, if you've done your research, if you've gone back and examined where they've come from and who they are and how they've approached everything in their life and talked to everybody, you really, you really get to know the person. You know who he is. What do you think the biggest misconception of him is? That he was a stupid man. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a stupid man. He wasn't a brilliant intellect, but he was very smart in the way he approached his life and the way he approached his presidency and the way he spoke to the American people. All right. This is another 2018 question. Was Ronald Reagan, did his death mark the end of an era? I think it did. You know, Ronald Reagan didn't have a hostile bone in his body. He, he never excoriated his opponents. He never made fun of women. He never made fun of, of people who weren't born here in the United States. That last speech that he gave as president of the United States where he talked about that shining city on the hill, Mm -hmm. he said that if the city had to have walls, if the city had to have walls, then the walls had to have doors and they should be open to anyone who wanted to come live here in peace. I mean, you know. (laughs) Different times. You bet. All right, Bob, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Bob Spitz is the author of a new biography of Ronald Reagan. It's called Reagan, an American Journey. Alexandra Alter joins us now with some news from the publishing world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. You're talking about a new book this week. Yes. So Vintage just announced they have a new book coming out at the end of the month. And in fact, it's a very old book. It's from 1965. It is a political thriller by Fletcher Nebel. And people started talking about this book quite a lot on cable news and on Twitter in September. This was the day that an anonymous op-ed was published in the New York Times by a Trump administration official who wrote about trying to undermine the president's agenda from within and and even said that members of the administration had discussed invoking the 25th Amendment. And the reason people started talking about this old political thriller was because it's about a president who's mentally unstable and unfit for office. And it sort of raises these uncomfortable questions about what congressional leaders should do, what administrations should do, if that is the case. It started to snowball that day. Rachel Maddow talked about the book on her program at length. People tweeted about it, including the presidential historian Michael Beschloss. Had all these people read this book? So <laughs> apparently um, some had. I don't know that that everyone had, but of course it immediately started a run on Amazon on used copies. There were some going for hundreds of dollars. And then, of course, you know, as happens, publishers pounced. So they went to the author's family. He died in 1993. But they went to his estate and to the agent representing them. And I think there were around half a dozen offers and vintage prevailed in this auction. And now they are reprinting the book and they're putting out an audiobook for the first time and an ebook. And it's uh, scheduled to come out on November 20th. All right. So, how does this work? If a book goes out of print, then you actually can get paid to 
again to republish it? I mean, you can get like two advances? I don't know about that exactly. I know that sometimes publishers have certain license on it and then mm-hmm. things do get relicensed. So if they go out of print, I think the rights revert to the author if the publisher isn't printing it anymore. But what I'm kind of curious to see is how readers respond to this, because as we've talked about before on this podcast, fiction sales have really flagged in the last couple of years because everyone's obsessed with the news. It's down like 15 percent. Yeah. And the biggest sellers are books like Bob Woodward's Fear and Michael Wolff's Fire and Fury. And these are sort of there's this real life political melodrama unfolding every day and people are glued to it. You'd think people might be looking to escape in fiction, but they're really not. They're they're really binging on on these political exposés. So there have been a few other attempts to kind of take on the current political themes of the day in fiction. There was Howard Jacobson's novel, I won't say the title because it's a bit obscene, um, which was this, you know, this political satire about a vain and vulgar prince. There was The Kingfisher Secret, which came out last month. It's an anonymously published book about an American tycoon who's about to become president of the United States and has ties to the Russian government. And there was uh, Jonathan Friedland's novel, which he published under a pen name last year. Again, very thinly veiled critique Mm -hmm. of this president. And a lot of these books have really fallen flat and people have said, you know, this is a little too close to reality. I get enough of this already. So So the people either want nonfiction or they want like fiction that has nothing to do with the current Yes. And so I wonder if Night of Camp David, which is the title of this novel, if I hadn't mentioned the title yet, I wonder if that might fill the gap a little bit because it's historical. And while there are a number of uh, parallels that people are pointing out to the current political environment, there are enough differences and enough critical distance and temporal distance for people to maybe enjoy sort of engaging in that thought experiment without sort of reliving the latest headlines. So in the novel, the, the president in question is a Democrat, and he summons this senator to Camp David and begins kind of ranting about his perceived enemies, he goes off on the media and he he's saying he wants to cut off the media sources in the White House. He even has arranged for a high-level meeting with a Soviet premier that is causing concern because people think it undermines national security. So there are there are some interesting parallels there. But when the book came out, it came out in 1965, which was the year that Congress actually passed the 25th Amendment. So it was quite scandalous at the time. And according to the author's son, who I spoke to, there was a movie deal that was supposed to go through, a very lucrative movie deal. But the author, Fletcher Neville, believed that that deal fell through because Lyndon Johnson was concerned that the the novel was sort of a veiled critique of him and that the movie would sort of expand the audience for the novel. So the author believed that Lyndon Johnson somehow sent an emissary to Hollywood and got the movie deal canceled. He wrote about that later on. I'm not sure whether that is how it went down, but it's sort of interesting that at the time it came out, it was very sort of provocative and people were sort of whispering about who the president might be based on. So So is it supposed to be any good? Well, at the time it came out, a critic wrote in the New York Times that it was, quote, too plausible for comfort. It's funny to hear that because it really echoes a lot of the critiques that you're hearing of current political fiction that is considered to be too realistic for people's comfort. I feel like nothing is too unrealistic or too realistic at this point. The boundaries have all shifted. All right. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, The Old Gang is back. Greg Coles, Tina Jordan, and John Williams. Hey, guys. Hey, Pamela. It's been a while. Has everyone here read 10 books? 
Yes. <laughs> no. Okay. But you are reading at least two, we know, Greg. I'm, because... I'm reading three books right now because I'm always keeping Ulysses going, and I'll, I'll spare listeners any Ulysses talk this week. I'm also reading just as kind of a, a fun thing the Harry Potter play that came out a few years ago based on this J.K. Rowling story, but it's not actually written by J.K. Rowling. It's that's Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. But the book that I am really deep into right now that, I'll, that I will talk about this week is a coming-of-age memoir by Kiese Lehman called Heavy. I think that Jen Salai talked about it on the podcast last week. She certainly reviewed it and very well and sparked my interest in it. This book is extraordinary. It, it follows your traditional coming-of-age arc. It's a very personal, incredibly intimate book, but it, it also unfolds in the context of being a black man in Jackson, Mississippi in the 80s. And kind of the whole matrix of it is stuff that the country as a whole is dealing with, and, and yet it is never less than personal. It's beautifully written. It is very complicated and fraught. It is addressed in the second person to his mother. And they had a very loving but also very difficult relationship. She really kind of drove him to succeed. And she was his protector, but she also was his abuser, physically his abuser. She would beat him. She would hold him to kind of impossible standards. And he is now reckoning with all of that in a way that's very raw and intimate and just kind of fearlessly honest. And I'm just really enraptured by this book. I'm, I'm loving it. Tina, you read that book too. Yes, I read it and I loved it. But that's not what you have in front of you. It's not what I have in front of me. What I have in front of me is something that's a little bit frivolous. It's called An Elderly Lady is Up to No Good by the, Swedish, <laughs> by the Swedish writer Helene Thurston. And not only is it a great title, it's great looking. It's this pint-sized book that looks like it's got a cross-stitched cover. So all the letters are done in cross-stitch and, you know, but like— it's not just cross-stitching. There, there are skulls and yes, crossbones it's skulls. It's like a sampler. <laughs> <laughs> it's like an evil-looking little sampler. And so it's a story collection, and the woman at the heart of all these stories is an 88-year-old Swedish woman who has a fabulous apartment in Gothenburg— Imagine a homicidal Miss Marple because that's what I kept thinking. You know, she's got this cloud of white hair and the blue eyes and she uses a wheeled walker. <laughs> and she like dispatches people that annoy her. And I guess it says something about me and how easily I'm annoyed that I actually find myself having very little problems with some of these murders. I mean, I, I am, but you know. She's the most likable character in ages. Right. I mean, but, but you get to a line like this. Maud picked up her sturdy stick in her right hand. In her left, she carried the bag of trash from her kitchen. And under her arm, she had tucked a bundle of old newspapers. You know, she wheeled slowly. <laughs> You're just like, little do you know that she's, you know, on her way. She's on her way. To- is she? Does she just do this out of spite? Or is she like a paid assassin? Or what, what's no. the story? Like in this first story, the one I'm reading from, so... This neighbor starts to show up with annoying regularity, like <laughs> plying her with pastries and coffee. And <laughs> she learns the nerve, but she learns through reading the woman's blog that she has designs on her apartment. Oh. <laughs> so this woman's after her so apartment. So it's like revenge fiction. Yeah. Nice. When did this come what, out? What do you know about the author? It's coming out this month. Mm-hmm. Helene Turston, she's a Swedish thriller writer. I have read some of her other thrillers, they they are, it's a series yeah. with a detective, I believe, named 
Irene Huss, who may, who I understand makes a brief appearance in one of these stories, but I haven't gotten there yet. So, so basically, this is just like a standalone. It's a standalone collection. Yes. Nice, John. What are you reading? Oh, I'm back on my course of <laughs> Japanese literature. I have read five or six books probably since last time we met, but I'll, I'll keep it to this one and then maybe briefly about another one. I started reading the novels of Yukio Mishima, who's one of the best-known 20th century Japanese writers. He wrote a series of, I think, four novels called The Sea of Fertility Cycle. And I'm, I'm actually reading Spring Snow now, which is the first of those. I'm going to slowly make my way through them. But the book I finished is called The Temple of the Golden Pavilion. It was published, I think, originally in 1959. It was based on a real episode in Japanese history in which an acolyte at a Zen temple, a young acolyte, burned it to the ground, this very ancient, beautiful temple full of, you know, architecture, history. And the book, the novel, is about a young acolyte at a Zen temple who is a stutterer and kind of uncomfortable in himself. And he becomes obsessed with the temple's beauty in a sort of... I think one of the big themes of the book is almost like a platonic ideal of beauty where he can be in a situation like around a young woman or and the temple sort of floats into his field of vision like this is just for him the ultimate. And and I guess because he's unsure of himself, it, it starts to become entangled with this idea of destruction. It's a slow moving book, but it's really rich. And Wait, the when you say scenes, this idea of destruction, you mean like something is so beautiful that you must destroy it? Well, it's almost like it exists whether or not it exists. It's this, again, it's it's an idealism in a way. And he just becomes strangely obsessed with it, but not in a, it, it's not like a psychological thriller or anything. It's, it's a pretty down to earth book. It reminds me a little bit of Dostoevsky. There's a lot of, you know, asides about things and little rambling <laughs> a few pages at a time about different subjects, but it's very powerful. A little slow moving, but I would definitely recommend it. And then I just started reading, which I'll probably read in addition to other things for a while because it's a giant book, a new book called Fatal Discord by Michael Massing, which is a 975-page book about Martin Luther and Erasmus, and as the subtitle has it, The Fight for the Western Mind. And it's basically about how 500 years ago their they never met in real life, but he uses their two lives and their two philosophies to talk about the Renaissance and the Reformation and how even now we think about things like metaphysics and Christianity and knowledge. And it's incredibly easy to read for such a – when you look at it, it's very intimidating. It's a real doorstop. They never met, but they were aware of one another and they yes, corresponded. I think they, they did and they definitely were aware of one another. But part of the – you know, one of the things that happens in the book, as our reviewer said, is that – as in history, Martin Luther eventually kind of takes over the book because Erasmus is incredibly interesting mind, but Luther definitely came to dominate the time and has also come to sort of dominate the historical record. Well, I don't want to pit readers and editors against one another, but this inevitably will raise the question of like Ulysses <laughs> versus Michael Mass. I, I thought John was going to say he, was, he had picked up Ulysses finally. No, I guarantee you I'll be done with this before you're done with Ulysses. <laughs> oh, oh, no That's doubt. a problem. <laughs> Pamela, I went into the deep past. Are you taking us into the future? Maybe? Well, you know, I just finished a week or so ago Gary Steingart's Lake Success, which is very much a novel of our times, and I loved it. But after being in our times, I decided to leave our times and go somewhere very different. I picked up a book called The Science Fiction Hall of Fame, Volume 2A, edited by Ben Bova. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about this book next week, but just a preview. This is a book that was published in 1973, and the science fiction writers of America 
gathered together to determine what the best science fiction novellas were before the Nebula Award was established. So they're looking back at what came before that. So I started reading that and then I, and I love it. And I'll talk more about it the next time. But I interrupted my reading after the first two novellas to read very quickly a book that an agent actually had talked up at a recent luncheon, Julie Bearer, was talking about Melissa Albert's The Hazelwood, which is a YA novel that came out earlier this year. And she was so enthusiastic that I immediately took a copy out from the library and read it in a couple of days. And I can't recommend it more highly. It's a modern fairy tale. The premise is so fascinating that everyone in my family kind of came up with a, a hypothesis of where this could go. But the premise is that a girl is the granddaughter of a famous novelist or writer, gathered up a collection of dark fairy tales called Tales from the Hinterland that became a kind of obsessive cult book, but has subsequently disappeared, and she's sort of disappeared. And this granddaughter, the girl, has been raised by her mother sort of on the run with bad luck pursuing them at every turn. And early in the novel, and this doesn't give anything away, the grandmother dies and the mother suddenly disappears, leaving the granddaughter to figure out her past and, and what's going on. And it, it, it's one of those books that has such a rich premise that you can see it going in a million different directions. So, Tina, you read it as well. I read it and loved it. Loved it. And, you know, it was on the bestseller list, at least for quite a while. And it was one of those books where when it shows up, you're like, oh, yes. Yes. You know? People have recognized People, the genius. Right. Yeah. Right. You're so happy when you see those books on the list. Yeah. I mean, it's a debut. And I, I think the author clearly knows what she's doing. She, I believe, writes a or used to write a, uh, a YA blog for Barnes & Noble for an online publication. And she just clearly knows the form. But it, the other thing about it is that it, it does kind of push the boundaries of YA, I thought. It's a very much a crossover book. Yes, it's right on that cusp. You can see it appealing to people. I mean, we loved it. But right. certainly people in their 20s would pick this up without thinking of it as a YA book. Right. Even people in their 30s like us. Even people who read about <laughs> 88-year-old killers. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I feel like I'm going to take flack for that. But. All right. Watch out, Greg. No, no flack. <laughs> Tina's getting ideas from this book. Until next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, thanks Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back. The Book Review Podcast is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with the great help of my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.